You are listening to the Tech Heads F1 podcast with Bryson, Molly, and Dr. Ops. Welcome back to the Tech Heads F1 podcast. I am your host, Bryson Sullivan, joined as always by my excellent co-host, Molly and Dr. Robs. How are we today, guys? New year, new me, huh? Yeah, it's a, it's a new year and the F1 season is upon us and uh, I'm super excited about it. What about you, Molly? Yeah, I echo the new year, new me. A couple weeks away from F1 season, but already kicking up in other seasons. I'm looking very forward to Rolex kicking off with the new GTP um, and hypercars that are making an appearance. And then next weekend's actually the start of NASCAR season. So it is spinning up real quick here. Yeah, things seem to be ramping up pretty quickly. We had the Autosport International show. We had the Roar before 24 this weekend. Things are starting to really come up together. I was a bit bummed here in the UK because we really don't get like good US motorsport coverage here in the UK. So I only really saw highlights, but man, I was impressed with those LMDHs. We even got some spray, Bryson, like there was some wet weather running. We even got some spray. We got to see some aerodynamics. It was great. Yeah, I'm never going to turn down an opportunity to watch that. But no, I'm, I'm very glad to be back in the new year. Glad to be starting a new year of podcast episodes. I'm extremely happy to have our invited guest for this particular episode. This is someone that I think all of us have known kind of tangentially in one capacity or another, but someone who has a tremendous amount of respect in the motorsports and engineering community and someone we're very happy to have on the podcast. I'd like to welcome Jai Campbell-Brennan. How are you today, Jai? Hi. Yeah, good to be here. I'm good, thank you. Thanks for that great intro. intro. That's, um, that's actually really nice for you to say. Jai is the director of Wavy Dynamics, an engineering consulting company with the mission to work with organizations to achieve the maximum of performance from an engineering application. He works mostly in motorsports, uh, but Jai is also a contributor to many things, including you know race car engineering, which is a magazine that ranges from race car kinematics to tire dynamics and many other things, which we're already familiar with. But he's also the technical director for Motors Formula Team in European GT3 and GT4. He's a design consultant for McLaren Super Series and Ultimate Series, and he really is a much appreciated and and valued voice in the motorsports community regarding representation and diversity. So we're really happy to have you here, Jai. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the invite. As Bryson said, we're super excited to have you here. And I think maybe Bryson and I are a bit heavy on the understanding on the aero side. We're super chuffed to have you on our podcast and talking dynamics and things like that. So let's get started. So I guess to begin with, you know, tell us a little bit about what got you into motorsports, kind of what excites you to work each day in this field. Yeah. um, So I would really start that story at the point at which I left university. Well, actually, no, a a little bit earlier, perhaps. Obviously, as engineering students, you look at motorsport as something that's, you know, pretty special for various reasons. So that was always a really cool thing for me as I was coming through in my master's. And then you leave uni and you kind of, the reality of of work catches you. So, you know, you you need to get working. And there's many more jobs and opportunities in the automotive industry. So I ended up working for Ford Motor Company in Essex here in England. And I value that job. I I think it was a very good introduction to the engineering world. It was a job where I had to travel quite a lot. So I got to see a lot of parts of the world that I would never have seen. But ultimately, a company like Ford is such a huge corporation. 
you know, you're you're a very small part of a, a bigger picture and it's also quite a risk averse way of engineering. So you're not really given so much responsibility. You don't have so much so many opportunities to shine as an engineer and, you know, really establish yourself as as someone who's capable of real innovation. So after some years, I kind of got a bit uh got a bit stagnant there. I felt I was a little comfortable, a little too comfortable. And started thinking what kind of engineering environment would give me what I want, really, what I would like from uh, from work. And that started to reveal that motorsport was where all the arrows pointed to. So, yeah, that was uh, that was a point at which I started making decisions to move into this space. It's so strange how this motorsport bug seems to eventually get everybody, even if you're not brought into it growing up or if you join the game late. Did you have any one particularly salient moment you can remember where you thought, wow, this is really what I want to work on? Yeah, I, yeah, actually. In the last years, I've been reflecting on what is it exactly about motorsport that I like. And there was one specific moment, I think it was 2007. So that would have been one of my first years at university. And I went to, um, I forget what it was called. It, it, it's now called the World Endurance Championship, but it was something else before, maybe the Le Mans series or, or something like that. But it was the time where Peugeot was coming strong with the diesel LMP1 cars and they were racing at Silverstone. And me and my friend went there and um, yeah, spent the day there for the race. It was like a four hour race, I think, four hours of Silverstone. And being that close to the cars and hearing, you know, you, you've got so many different classes of cars I remember there was the there was the Corvettes, you know, which is a very distinct, yeah, like yeah. visceral sound. Then you had the Porsches, completely different sound, gave me a headache. You know, you've got <laughs> the, uh, maybe it was where the wind the wind was blowing at that particular point of the day, but where we were in the stands, we were just getting fumes, you know, exhaust fumes, and it was just it's it's just the overall powerful experience. And I think yeah, that really inspired me to think, oh wow, this would be you know, this is a great great thing. And with the training I'm doing at university, I could, you know, this is somewhere I could potentially work. Very cool. Very cool. I always love that that's everybody with WEC. Like you, you know the Corvettes, you know the Cadillacs, you know each one, the Porsche, the Fords when they were there by just yeah. the literal scream of their engine. Mm-hmm. One of my friends always used to joke that the Corvettes were screaming in American Eagle or, or in Freedom at Le Mans <laughs> every year. <laughs> I'm willing to rule it in, to be honest. I can't rule it out at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's an, an assault on all the senses. It's, it's quite unique. So when designing a race car for the first time, what were some key dy- race dynamic factors that you need to take into account? Sometimes it's it's helpful to like break things down into first order, second order. And what those mean to me is, you know, what are the most prominent influences on the dynamics of a car? Um, and then still important, but maybe to a lesser extent, what are the second order characteristics that you want to keep control of but for me the really key things and the real fundamentals of getting a car right is to get the weight balance and the center of mass height position correctly and also the the inertia of the car so you don't want a lot of mass out over you know the front of the rear wheels you want it as close to the the center of mass as possible so i would say yeah those are the those are the things you'd want to pay most attention to getting the center of mass as low as possible as centered between the wheelbase as possible with some caveats perhaps but yeah 
Vehicle dynamics is such a, a complex and multidisciplined topic. I think mm. it's one of the things that we enjoy talking about the most besides Arrow. <laughs> and believe it or not, one of my first experiences becoming aware of you, Jai, mm. was when I was doing a thread on Twitter about the effect of weight increases or decreases versus power increases and decreases. You know, mm. how much of an impact do each of those have on lap time, which is most important and what the actual weight effect was. And I think a mutual friend of ours, Paris and Miriam from the On the oh, Chagain yeah. podcast, they referenced one of your articles that you'd written for Wavy Dynamics about weight transfer and all of these things. And so that was mm -hmm. one of my first experiences becoming aware of your, your great technical ability to convey information. Just for people who maybe haven't had a detailed education in motorsport engineering, could you maybe talk a little bit about the primary behavioral modes of a car? heave, you know, pitch, roll, you know, these types of things and how these design variables come into play when you're designing the car, not only to sort of handle these, these movements, but potentially to optimize them for performance. I just want to say as well with the, the articles, that's, um, you know, me and you have talked about those before, but it's really um, positive to hear that they're being received like that. I, I used to write them. I mean, I say used to, I still write for the magazine occasionally, but the exercise of writing those articles was really about well, it was, a, it was a marketing thing for the business, I guess, firstly, but also it was a way of consolidating my knowledge. So when I was writing the majority of those or the bulk of those, it was at a time where I was doing a lot of research and learning and experimentation and things myself. So what I strongly believe is that unless you can explain something coherently to someone else, you don't really understand it. So writing those articles was, um, yeah, it was a way of, I guess, sanity checking my understanding of things. And a lot of the time, as I was writing them, I'd be trying to explain something and I'd realize I don't really understand it well enough to explain to someone else. So, you know, that would send me back to the books. And so, yeah, it was, um, I think it was a really, a really good process that I had. And I, I do, I do want to write some more when I get a bit more time, but, um, yeah, so it's good to hear that they're being received as, as intended. Just to, to sort of build on the podcast universe that we're sort of building, we've had enough episodes to actually have crossovers now. We had Mike Law on the podcast a, a few episodes ago, and he was talking about things like cornering stiffness yeah. and slip ratios and understeer gradients and things like that. And I was yeah. looking for resources to try to figure out the best way to explain that. And the Google machine <laughs> mm. sent me directly to one of your own articles. So oh, that, should wow. make you feel, that should make you feel pretty good. Look at that. <laughs> nice. So your question was um, to explain the chassis modes, chassis displacement modes, roll, heave. The the motion of the, the unsprung mass or just the inputs into... Well, no, I wouldn't limit it to the unsprung mass, actually. It, it, I guess it's just overall the ways in which a, a car body can move relative to the ground and the inputs that can be received by the chassis from the road. So you have roll, which is, I guess, quite a, a well-understood one that's caused by a lateral acceleration. You have heave, which is what you encounter, you know, maybe as you go over a crest or due to aerodynamic loads or things like that. Um, then you have pitch, which is, you know, under braking and long, other longitudinal accelerations. And also warp, which is a bit of a strange one, really. And uh, I'm yet to really encounter an application where warp is really a crucial performance factor. But it's um, when you get kind of diagonally opposing inputs into the chassis. So it's something that would tend to cause like a torsional uh, deflection in the chassis. Yeah. So uh, those are the four chassis modes that are, uh, I guess, quite widely known and referred to. 
One of the things that is quite interesting is that when we look at Mercedes talking about some of the things they needed to address with the W13 moving on to the W14, one of the things I mentioned was chassis stiffness. Mm. And I thought that was something that, you know, not many of us, we were all, you know, speculating about side pods and rear tire drag and all these kinds of things because we're arrows. Mm. But I think chassis stiffness is is something that is quite interesting as well to think about. I think, you know, people sometimes take it for granted, right, that mm. these chassis aren't infinitely stiff and can take like all of the loads that you would think that they can, but they're yeah. actually balancing strength to weight, right? Yeah, definitely. That's always a consideration. Um, at a high level, I've not really got involved in development in that sense. But yeah, I mean, the chassis is in torsion, is a, it can act as a spring, right? And an undamped or a very a spring with very low damping as well. So it can start doing some interesting things where, you know, for example, if you're, if you encounter a, like a, a disturbance mid corner that unsettles, you know, the front left wheel, for example, if that causes, a, you know, a meaningful deflection in the chassis, then the dampers aren't able to manage the you know the energy inputs into the wheel as well as they otherwise would if they had a, a stable platform to operate from. So it can yeah it can start doing some interesting things. I think you know it's not like I was saying earlier not a first order or a second order effect, but still can you know when you're looking for tenths and hundredths of of seconds yeah, can be things to look at, which I'm sure is is <laughs> what Mercedes are looking for and why they they've highlighted it as something to develop. Kind of building off of that with like spring systems and damped uh, systems, last year there was a lot of talk about low speed cornering performance. Mm. Could you explain some of the dynamics inter- or some of the dynamic interactions as a design engineer that must be taken into account to improve low speed cornering performance or I guess maybe just cornering performance in general? So I guess the distinction is, um, well, the distinction between low and high speed cornering is that one of them error effects dominate and the other uh, chassis, um, I guess, character dominates. So um, low speed cornering is generally considered where error loads are low and the function of the chassis and the suspension system are really the, the most heavy influences into performance. Low speed performance is largely about maintaining body control and also making sure that the inputs from the road into the wheels are controlled well enough. A lot of engineers run into trade-offs in the sense that the high speed performance and low speed performance have conflicting interests a lot of the time. So an aerodynamic platform needs really stiff roll and pitch and, and heave uh, control to maintain you know, a constant attitude of, of the underfloor to the, the track surface. But that then, in a low speed sense, is awful for uh, the variations you get in contact patch uh, pressure in the Z axis, which is you know perpendicular to the floor. So if you have really stiff springs, really stiff dampers, um, high speed damping, you can get some you know some higher variations of pressure in the contact patch, and that then lowers your average grip level. So yeah, there's there's some fighting uh, requirements as usual. There's a lot of um, competition between what takes prevalence and what doesn't. But yeah, so to summarize, if you're hearing low speed cornering performance, it's largely going to be you know the effects of of springs and and dampers and things like that. 
Jai, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, maintaining a really a stable aero platform. That's something we've talked about in the past. We've had a few F1 aerodynamicists on the pod who also mentioned that. I think it's a great segue into our next question. The RB18, one of the most striking things I think that, you know, many people picked up on in the RB18 was the front suspension setup. And in a few of your, you know, race car engineering articles, you've you've written about this anti-dive um, mm-hmm. setup and the RB18 has it. For our listeners who might be, you know, maybe aren't so technically adept on this subject, could you explain a little bit what an anti-dive setup is and how it kind of works and and affects the performance of the car? So yeah, anti-dive is something that you see on the front axle of um, race cars and some road cars, actually. And it's about uh, a lot of listeners and and yourselves also might have heard of um, the roll centre and where you place the roll centre to get certain characteristics from the car. But the roll centre is something you see in the front view. But in the side view, as in like if you're looking at a car from the side view, you also have something called a pitch centre. And that pitch centre is the point at which you can assume all the forces going from the front suspension uh, reacted on the chassis. And similarly to the centre of mass, it's it's a fiction. well, I don't want to say fictional, but it's not like a tangible physical point. So what anti-dive does is, or what adjusting the anti-dive does is influence where the pitch centre is in the z-axis. So where the the pitch centre falls uh, relative to the ground plane. And... Placing this strategically, you can adjust the leverage it has over the center of mass, which then has an influence on any forces you get in a longitudinal sense um, reacted by the front axle, how much leverage they have to cause a pitching moment over the, the center of mass. So yeah, you can manipulate the pitch center to give you zero moment in uh, that would, that would cause pitch. So you can have, I guess, 100% anti-dive, but that then gives you other uh, problems that you might not want so again another balance that has to be made but yeah that's that's a that's definitely a, a predominantly an aerodynamic thing i was just gonna say it was so interesting that we were talking about this anti-dive property of suspension we were talking about the rebel suspension geometry mm. it was incredibly striking looking at the upper wishbone of that car and how radically different the vertical position was of the two mounts and yeah. it was an anti-dive strategy but We'd seen things kind of like that before, but never that, that that extreme. Yeah, I actually spoke to an engineer who will remain nameless. That's kind of close to that that team, maybe. Um, and, but I, I was hearing that was actually an aerodynamic consideration rather than a vehicle dynamic consideration. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so the wishbone geometry wasn't preferred by vehicle dynamics, but aerodynamics found that it gave them, you know, it treated the flow condition the flow in a certain way which was better for the vehicle overall so that was an interesting one that's great insight yeah i know i know bryson i mean you know bryson and i i mean on twitter or other podcasts we've talked about just the the uh, over molding on the wishbone of the w13 for instance how the cord length is so long and you get so much yeah. downwash out of that yeah. and then this is very interesting as well for the rb18 similarly yeah yeah, and just so I'm clear, the RB18 was the 2020, no, 2022 car. Yeah, yeah. the yeah, first yeah. of the new one. The one that was inexplicably fast and straight line and didn't have porpoising <laughs> and had great downforce and tire wear. <laughs> the one, the one that uh, that once it you know lost a few kilos in the second half of the season was 
nigh unbeatable. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting yeah. thing I think about the RBA, I mean, this coming from obviously like a, a, a novice and uh, race dynamics like myself is that, you know, when I read a lot and, and I really enjoyed your, your article specifically on this, Jai, I think it was fantastic. And, you know, the role centers and the diagrams you used were all made it so much. I'm, I'm such a visual learner and that really helped me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the aspect of the anti-dive, you know, suspension being in such or set up being in such a way that you take a lot of the loads through the members, like the structural members themselves, rather than through the suspension, which yeah. kind of brings us back to what you were saying previously about how, you know, if you're going to have like low speed cornering performance, you might want to set up your suspension in a certain way to allow for it to have some compliance for that, say, for instance. But if you have an anti-dive set up on as well with that, you could say, take some of the stress off of the suspension components, put them through the structural members that allows you to maybe find a a neater balance between sort of low speed cornering performance, medium speed cornering performance, things like that. The interesting thing about anti-dive as well is that back to the contact contact patch pressures and the variation in them, as you take out the, the control of the springs and dampers and shift it towards the wishbones and uh, the rest of the members, you can do some nasty things with the, the way the system reacts to the energy input into the tire. So it can bite you in some situations. So this goes back to, um, you know, I think I mentioned, maybe it was a different article to the one you just quoted, but the geometric and elastic weight transfer. So, you know, that that works in roll um, and lateral weight transfer and things like that. But also it's the same kind of, uh, it's the same mechanism when you're talking about um, pitching. I think there are so many layers to this that I still haven't gotten into. Mm. I feel like every time I talk to an actual vehicle, vehicle dynamicist, I'm like, oh, I have to relearn that too. <laughs> I have to add uh, oh. some new layers to my portfolio, which is, which is a good thing. Oh. This is always a good thing. Me too. Vehicle dynamics is such a vast subject. Like I'll forever be a student. Yeah, and there are certainly times where I'll be introduced to a new topic and be like, hmm, uh, I still got a lot to learn. We were kind of indirectly singing the praises of the RP18 previously and then kind of stark contrast to that. Mercedes had a very torrid season last season. It seemed to be like they predicted that they would have a, a monster of a car early on, initially discovered the porpoising issues. Then they seemed to get that pure porpoising issue under control in Spain, which was to say preventing the floor from stalling directly, but then quickly discovered that they had a, a bottoming issue. And I remember watching one of the episodes that Mercedes did explaining what their issues were and James Allison was talking and he was saying quite pointedly the explanation for the problems that we're having is actually quite different from what you're hearing on TV and what we were hearing on TV at the time was about aerodynamic stall you know moving the, the chassis up and down in the classical porpoising sense but this bottoming issue that they were dealing with later on in the season was just as critical, if not more critical. I think probably the worst example of it was in Baku, hmm. a very bumpy surface that actually had you know huge performance impacts on the car. I was just wondering, could you talk a little bit about bottoming as kind of a, a vehicle dynamics phenomenon, which might be slightly different than porpoising, if you have any, any thoughts on that, on that dynamic behavior? And if so, could you just talk a little bit about the role that the suspension plays and in, in managing bumps and variations in the track, you know, curbs and uh, elevation changes and things as well. Um, yeah. So 
I guess, firstly, just so we're on the same page, what's your understanding of um, bottoming when that word was used? Now we're getting into it. Now we're getting into some of the fun bits because I actually talked to Craig Scarborough about this a little bit previously. And one of the things that he was describing as as being the critical factor here wasn't so much that the floor itself was stalling at the, the very low ride heights, but in situations where it's very bumpy on top of the car being loaded enough to be very low to the ground, the aero sensitivity, the change in downforce with respect to ride height was extremely sensitive. And not only that, but it was working it was working like out of phase with what the car normally wanted to do going up and down. So in a situation where the car naturally wanted to go up, the aero was trying to go down and, and vice versa, sort of forcing it to be sort of skipping along the, the bottom of the floor over the track. Okay. There are more details to that, but... I think the key emphasis that I wanted that was impressed upon me was that there's more to the question than the simple, oh, the floor is stalling. We've known this about porpoising for a long time. There's something else going on here that's a, a bit more complex. So I guess my assumption of what was meant there then is the bottoming out of the um, suspension and the, the springs dampers. And yeah, so I guess a damper only has a, a finite level of travel. And when you reach the end of that travel, it's customary to have bump stops, which um, can take different forms. Sometimes they're just simple, you know, polyurethane rubber, and other times it can be like a fully hydraulic and complex system, such as in, in rally and things like that. But yeah, effectively, what you're doing when you're introducing a bump stop is it's just uh, you're putting a, a very stiff spring into the the system and often a spring with a progressive rate as well so the more you compress it or the more it's displaced the more force it offers so if if the the porpoising issue was causing the suspension to oscillate in such a way that it's hitting the bump stops yeah that can that could that would definitely make things a little bit more interesting so you'd get um yeah you know the car would slam into this bump stop and i don't actually know how they do this in formula one so um, look at my, I guess my experience is mostly with GT, but you, know, you, you reach full compression of suspension, you hit a, a very stiff spring, which then shoots it back up. Then you kind of, yeah, you're getting the, the aerodynamics is then reactivating to pull the car down to the ground. And you're kind of just repeating that process. And that, that is something through changing the behavior of the bump stop, you'd be able to influence. Yeah, maybe that was what was going on there. I must admit, I was, didn't really follow that whole um, porpoising thing in so much. It was very complicated, and it, and it was made it was made even more complicated by the fact that we lost a lot of the fun suspension tricks that we used to have in previous years. You know, inter interconnected suspensions like gas springs and inerters and all kinds of things mm. that only served to exacerbate the problem. But it seemed like, just as you said, Mercedes may have had another issue with their car, and that they're actually running out of travel based on their suspension design. Yeah. And and this old you know story we kept hearing. You're experiencing porpoising or bottoming. Just raise your car. Just raise your car. Just keep going. And they actually found themselves in a situation where the assumption is that you can raise your car enough to where you wouldn't experience the bouncing. Yeah. But they actually were in a situation where they had such little vertical ride height travel, even potentially if they raised the car as high as they could or as meaningfully as they could, they were still in the window where they could have a problem. So it's an interesting thing that they probably needed a full suspension redesign to actually address. Yeah, and and even theoretically, if they could raise the ride height to the fact that the porpoising issue is, is has gone away, you're now producing less downforce, so you're not competitive anyway. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure it was a really tough one. 
from the outside, it's easy for myself to think, you know, we've had cars that are using tunnels and, and things like that in this way before. How did not one engineer say, hold on a minute, we, this is a risk. We better look at this when we're developing, you know. But I, I think to say that no one thought of that would probably be doing them a disservice. I think it's, it's actually a really complex issue. Easy to, yeah, relatively easy to get rid of, but then you, you wouldn't be competitive. So maintaining your performance and fixing the issue evidently gave a lot of teams a lot of headaches. Yeah, I, I think uh, there's any number of stories that have come from <laughs> from teams on the paddock about who knew and how much they knew about it or how much they could simulate it right uh, in the wind tunnel. I think it was a really, it was a, a very dynamic problem. Um, which is why CFD didn't see it as as you, you might expect as well. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think for those of us who are like big picture tech people who love where Arrow meets dynamics and you know mechan- mm. the mechanics of a race car and things like that, like that intersection, this was the perfect issue to have to solve. I think if you were a fan yeah. of that, because they were all so interrelated. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely was, but just to be clear, I mean, those aeroelastic simulations and those multi-physics simulations are extremely expensive. <laughs> and when we're operating in a cost cap era where you're not even sure if you have a problem before the season starts, you know, how much time can you meaningfully dedicate to running high fidelity coupled aeroelastic simulations in it with a problem that you're not even fully convinced even exists yet? I mean, yeah. and we know for a fact that Mercedes didn't think they had a problem because they spent an entire month testing and driving a car around that wasn't their final configuration. <laughs> Perhaps if they went with their final configuration earlier on, they would have some sense as to the scale of the problem. Yeah, yeah, possibly. I was just going to add on that a lot of those simulations, I think, depending on what they were in kind of the aeroelastic world, are regulated in the amount of time that you can spend on them or hours running them in this new era as well to try and level the playing field. And so the higher you were up in the order, the less of that time you got, just like the arrow scale. So it definitely is also a trade-off there is, do I spend some analysis time that I don't know if I need right out of the gate on a high fidelity model that could take up a lot of that credit that I have um, to try and do this. So just something to also kind of keep in mind and add a layer onto. Yeah. And at the end of it, it's a, a collection of humans who are trying to make the best decisions and inevitably not everyone makes the best decisions yeah absolutely and i mean it doesn't matter if you're talking about motorsports or you're talking about airplanes or you know the energy industry i mean engineers are always taking decisions of how far do i want to go with my design with my concept that introduces technical risk or compl- potential complications because i believe that the ceiling of performance is that much higher, right? It's always a trade-off. I, I think we've had a lot of great conversation about dynamics and things like that. And it's time to talk tires now. So <laughs> tires tires were a big topic of conversation last year, right? And even this year in FP1, they're going to run one set of tires, FP2, another set of tires, FP3, another set. So tires are going to continue to be a topic. So let's get out ahead of it. Jai, um, tires, about tires. How is the dynamic behavior of tires related to your suspension, the performance of a race car? I mean, I think with previous years, we saw that the sidewalls were much larger, right? So you probably had a, little, a bit more elasticity than maybe that you had in in the cars in 2022 can you maybe speak to tire dynamics and how that relates to race car dynamics yeah sure tires are really um 
Ties are a really interesting one. Well, one, because they're so important, and two, because they're uh, so tricky. But yeah, I think in terms of their importance, it seems like an obvious thing to say, but it's the only part of the car which is um, in contact with the ground. So everything you're trying to do with vehicle dynamics, with aerodynamics, with your engine, everything has to pass through the tires. So they have the final say in your car's performance. So yeah, certainly in my work, I, I really like to take a tire-centric approach to performance development and creating the best environment for the tire to operate at its peak is uh, is one of the most important things you can you can really focus on. Yeah, and also the most tricky. So yeah, in order to do that, you really need to understand the tire, and that's uh, that's something that science is continuing to do, let alone um, trackside engineers or you know people in the development office. It's so complicated, not only in terms of the me- physical, mechanical modeling of the tire, how it deflects, how it forms, yeah. how the sidewalls move. You talked about the contact patch previously, but also just the characteristics of the compound as a function of temperature and, and pressure. It, yeah. we, we know how different they are for, for different compounds and how hard they are to warm up in different conditions. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's not just temperature and pressure. It's also, you know, as, a, as a tire is hot, you're continuing the, the vulcanization process and you know the, the different sulfur bonds which are forming and, and changing within the tire structure. So even if you understand how the tire reacts to uh, temperature and, and pressure at one specific operating point, in an hour's time, the tire doesn't react the same because it's it's chemically changed and yeah and that doesn't even we're not talking about the the actual tread volume and how that changes and so it's all so many moving targets it's, it it can be a real um, a real tricky one i think this is a perfect segue into the next question we had about tires we hear tire graining a lot and mm. graining be discussed a lot um in motorsports i think any series in the world they talk about graining and can you explain what this means and how this happens and how it ties into what you were just talking about graining is generally something that happens when um you've got a, a colder tire and um you get a, a very high and when i say a colder tire i mean like the bulk um, the bulk tread the, the temperature through the tread layers and when the tire is cold and you're trying to warm it up for example you, you can sometimes be a little aggressive with it and what happens is as the tire slides across the track surface you get a very high temperature right at the at the, the kind of the external tread layer the, the contact patch and the um, rubber material can literally start to melt just on that very thin layer because it, it's still cold underneath so you've got like a suddenly an area that's very flexible and very ductile, but then you know maybe a millimeter below it, it's is very it can be relatively stiffer. So you get this layer of rubber that begins to melt and just lose all its um, all its stiffness, and that can then kind of uh, in a similar way to melted cheese, just be smeared across the the track surface, and then as it cools down again. It can kind of start to roll up into little, um, you know, little grains, <laughs> and when those grains solidify, they manifest themselves as little kind of raised grains on the, on the tire surface. Yeah, the, the way you describe that actually has is, is got my brain turning because <clears throat> it suggests that the problem is localized heating. Yeah, and then if you're able to to get a more distribute a better distribution of temperature throughout the compound, it wouldn't be quite as much of a gradient in stiffness, and it wouldn't really shear off in the way that it does. Yeah. That maybe helps to explain why you can sometimes go through a graining phase 
gradles start grading, and then once you get enough bulk temperature in the tire, it can kind of clean up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because they're, they're only, you know, the bits of a molten tire that have re-solidified, but you can wear those through. And once you're, you know, once the bulk temperature is higher, you're much less susceptible to it. So yeah, the problem can can be driven through. Best to avoid though. My question was super quick, just to tie into that. You talked about kind of the, the molten cheese and the smear effect. Yeah. Does what is what you were explaining? Does that tie into like tire marbling when you hear about like marbles on the surface and marbles being something that can affect like the grip of cars as they um as as it is put down through a race? Uh, yeah, somewhat. Marbles are. are I would generally think of as bigger, so more substantial lumps that have fallen off, fallen off the tire in some way. You can get situations where all the kind of all the grains, um, especially when you have quite a lot of camber in a tire, where all the grains kind of coalesce at at the like an outside edge and start to form form like a bigger, more coherent mass of of rubber that can be just picked off the tire. So whether it's um, you know, just through the rotation of the tire and it getting flung off or something else, those bigger bits of rubber can find their way on this, onto the track surface where they can be run over and, you know, they reduce your contact area and can start to mess with your grip. What you were talking about is probably more closely related to a green track versus a rubbered in track because I, the thing that probably not uh, the casual fan can appreciate is that every track surface is not this beautiful pristine surface you know they're all so different and really when you get into the microstructure and you start looking oh, microstructure i mean it's even you can even see it bigger than that but when you zoom in close to a track it's not smooth it's full of tons of peaks and valleys and those peaks and valleys are either have rubber in them or they don't and yeah. so whenever you don't have rubber in those peaks and valleys you're gonna end up transferring some of the rubber from your tire into it. And then once the track is then filled in with that rubber, it actually gets quite sticky. Isn't that right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there are two forms of, of adhesion with tires. Um, so as you're saying, the peaks and valleys in the track surface can kind of penetrate into the, the rubber material. But also in that process, you get um, um, at the molecular level, you get rubber molecules which come into contact with asphalt molecules and form like a chemical bond so then when that tire leaves you kind of you get molecules left behind in some in some circumstances so yeah the the track evolves throughout a race as much as the car does in a lot of ways yeah i was gonna add just like a random tangent that uh, there's actually tracks here in other series um, for any listeners that aren't aware. They'll manipulate the track ahead of the race. If it's green, they'll go ahead and they'll they'll drag tires and they'll put compounds down to try and rubber in a track. And it's not always the most satisfactory result, but there are tracks that actively just try to rubber in to help racing ahead of cars even touching that track for a race weekend. I was thinking like, I've never actually seen that happen, but um, oh, I yeah. They do it in NASCAR and IndyCar a lot, actually. This is an American thing. It's a cool, like, we're kind of talking about it. And it's interesting that, like, it's it's not as common in other series. It's, yeah. it's There's a thing called a tire dragon. It is it is a weird contraption. I'll, I'll send you, like, How a picture and a DM of it. <laughs> we, we do things a little a little differently over here, as I, as I imagine you're discovering. <laughs> but no, I, you know, as we were kind of rounding third base here, I actually had a related question. We were talking about the uh, 
changes in the tire, you know, the, how the new tires are 18 inch wheels rather and the new tires on that, they have a smaller sidewall. One of the things that I've noticed, and it's a, it's occurred to me more acutely now that I've been rewatching races is it seems like the frequency with which these new tires are becoming separated from the wheels is, is happening at a greater frequency than it did previously. Very rarely in the 13-inch wheel era of Formula One, in the past couple of years at least, do I remember tires coming off of the wheel rim just in regular collisions, whereas it happened like three, four, maybe even five times in the 2022 Formula One season uh, you know, Lance Stroll in Austria, Alex, or in Australia, excuse me, um, Alex Albon in Jeddah, Lando Norris in Miami. You know, there, there are just so many examples of it. I'm wondering, do you think that the inability of that stiffer sidewall to absorb energy in collisions, and it may be inadvertently transferring that to the bead of the tire where it was gripping the wheel, yeah. do you think there actually might be something to that? And I mean, I, I doubt that the tire itself is a safety hazard per se, but do you think there might be any credibility to the hypothesis that the stiffer sidewall construction is actually correlated with the tire coming off the wheel more easily? Uh, I would say so, because if, if you get, um, you know, if you've got a certain amount of force going into the tire, if one tire can move you know if one if one tire has a lower stiffness and can therefore deflect more you can probably absorb a lot of that collision um in a better way where if you've got less movement and you have to absorb that force in you know a much lower displacement then um yeah i can imagine that being a, a factor in it i feel like i've missed a lot of f1 this season because all these <laughs> all these things i've not really heard of and maybe i'm a bad fan i don't know <laughs> no i i think it's just that the circles that we tend to get into have uh, un- unacceptably specialized conversations <laughs> about some of this. Like the, the vast majority of people don't need to worry about this, but you know, some of us have a weird attention to detail that we can't really shake and think about some of what these physical connections might be. You know, yeah. are these things happening in a completely uncorrelated way, or is there some kind of physical mechanism that's actually leading to it? And as I said, I don't think it's a huge safety issue or we're not raising any alarms or anything, but it did seem like a plausible mechanism to explain why the frequency of the, it's not delamination, it's more of a, a liberation of the tire from the wheel might be happening. Yeah, uh, and yeah, so on that point, I mean, we're engineers, this is what we do. We have to think and try and figure things out. So I'm sure there are some good discussions. I just, I just need to watch more races, I think. I think I've only caught about three of them this season. Yeah, I also don't know what the difference in tire pressures that they run are in F1 versus 2021. You know, that could also be a factor. And yeah, just the general construction of the tire, the the, the parameters of stiffness in X, Y, and Z on a tire are all tunable and can be made different depending on whatever the manufacturer is after. I had a really interesting conversation with um, an, a Le Mans engineer about this. Yeah, he, he was with Audi and Porsche for um, Le Mans and was saying they, you know, regulations have closed this off now, but they used to work with the tyre supplier directly to develop and fine-tune even down to that level, like the longitud- longitudinal stiffness of the tyre and, and things like that to, to suit the chassis best. 
Very cool. Very cool. Well, I know Jai, you've been incredibly gracious with your with your time, and we appreciate you you coming by. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit more about your company, Wavy Dynamics, what it's about, what its capabilities are that they can offer to customers, and maybe some of the things that you're looking forward to going forward. So, Wavy Dynamics, in I would say we specialize in vehicle dynamics and aerodynamics um, precisely for that reason as you mentioned earlier that there are so many so much interactions between the two having a, a thorough understanding of both is um, something which can only be a benefit so yeah I tend to be doing a lot of engineering design stuff recently which is what I'm doing with McLaren but yeah in the future for us I think my ultimate goal with the company is to create something similar to like a multimatic or a Williams Advanced Engineering or Sauber Engineering or something where you develop a real a real strong reputation and base of experience and expertise and skill set in the arena of motorsport. And then you find opportunities to export that into other industries, you know, whether that's medical, aerospace, civil, you know, all sorts of things. I think that's the beauty of motorsport. Is, uh, is that you need such a wide range of understanding in scientific principles and engineering disciplines and things. So yeah, this year, I would like to just continue to build on, on what we've been doing. I want to get a lot more trackside work this year for myself and the company, you know, whether that's, you know, data performance or race engineering at high levels. And yeah, just, just continue to do things that I've not done before and increase my, my experience and widen my reputation. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast. We were really appreciative of your time. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure.